Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist and your source for all the latest mental health related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about research into the latest treatments and causes of mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, and also endeavoring to better educate the general public about mental health issues. And welcome, I appreciate all of you tuning into tonight's show. This is the Wednesday, September 24th edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you've been feeling well lately. And of course, I'm always interested and excited and motivated to bring you the information that I tell you about week to week. But really, the first item we're going to talk about on tonight's show is quite momentous. One of the reasons why there's so much misunderstanding and stigma about mental illness, and we'll talk about depression in particular in this case, is that it's diagnosed in a very subjective way. Uh, Up until now, there have been no tests for depression in the same sense that there are tests for other illnesses, that is to say, blood tests especially or x-rays. Strictly speaking, there are imaging studies that will document depression. You can do a positron emission tomography or PET scan of the brain, and you get these very elegant pictures showing decreased activity in certain areas of the brain, especially the frontal areas when someone's depressed. But that's an extremely expensive and fairly invasive way to diagnose depression. You have to be injected with radioactive dyes, and the scan costs many thousands of dollars, and insurance certainly would not cover it, easily turning it down as something not approved and quote-unquote experimental. And there are certainly blood tests to rule out other causes of feeling depressed, such as thyroid hormone imbalances, reproductive hormone imbalances, even vitamin deficiencies. But as far as a specific test for depression itself, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that such a test is like the holy grail of psychiatric diagnosis. And so if there were such a thing, think about what would change Uh, People who are not feeling well and reluctant to admit that they're depressed or looking for other things that are wrong in vain because the problem is that they're depressed would then have a test that their doctor could do to see what really is and, more importantly, what is not going on. Wouldn't that be a revolution? Well, we may finally be on the cusp of that revolution because the first blood test to diagnose major depression in adults has been developed by Northwestern medicine scientists 
And this is a breakthrough approach. It provides the first objective scientific diagnosis for depression. The test identifies depression by measuring the levels of nine RNA blood markers. RNA molecules are the messengers that interpret the DNA genetic code and carry out its instructions. So you know what DNA is, That's, that has the genetic code. The RNA is what translates the DNA into uh, the specific instructions that the code dictates. The blood test also predicts who will benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy, a non-medical treatment based on the behavior of some of these markers. This will provide the opportunity for more effective individualized therapy for people with depression. That's also quite remarkable that the test would not only say whether someone is depressed or not, but also tell us who's more likely or not to benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. Maybe the objective test giving this indication would make it easier to justify to insurance companies who are often reluctant to pay for non-medical treatments such as counseling or therapy say, hey, well, based on objective laboratory evidence, this patient is a good candidate for cognitive behavioral therapy. Therefore, you can't justify denying insurance coverage for it. Of course, all that remains to be seen. Now, the test also showed the biological effects of cognitive behavioral therapy, the first measurable blood-based evidence of therapy's success. The levels of the markers changed in patients who had cognitive behavioral therapy for 18 weeks and were no longer depressed. Think about that. How many people just tend to discount therapy as like, well, what good will talking to someone do? That doesn't really help. And how can that bring about real change, especially biological change in the body and in the brain that's measurable? Well, to be honest about that, this isn't uh, such a new finding. Uh, in years past, remember I was talking about PET scanning of the brain? You can document through PET scanning that people will improve and respond to cognitive behavioral therapy using before and after PET scans. That's only treating someone with therapy, not with medication. And yes, the PET scan will document improvement. So there's another example of an objective test that documents the benefits of therapy, but never before a blood test. Uh, so <clears throat> the, the uh, person who developed the test, Eva Rede, is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University. She says, this clearly indicates that you can have a blood-based laboratory test for depression providing a scientific diagnosis in the same way someone is diagnosed with high blood pressure or high cholesterol. This test brings mental health diagnosis into the 21st century 
and offers the first personalized medicine approach to people suffering from depression. Now, the study about this test was published in the September 16 issue of the journal Translational Psychiatry. Think about this. To bring diagnosis of depression into the same realm as diagnosis of so many other things that physicians treat, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, diabetes, low thyroid, I mean, so many things. Well, it's uh, the search for this biological diagnostic test for depression has been going on for decades. The problem is that the current method of diagnosing depression is subjective. It's based on nonspecific symptoms such as poor mood, fatigue, change in appetite, all of which can apply to a large number of mental or physical problems. A diagnosis also relies on the patient's ability to report his symptoms and the physician's ability to interpret them. But depressed patients frequently underreport or inadequately describe their symptoms. And it depends on the clinician interviewing the patient, asking the right questions, getting diagnostic clues just by verbal and visual information from the patient. Now, the co-author of the study, Dr. David Moore, said mental health has been where medicine was 100 years ago when physicians diagnosed illness or disorders based on symptoms. This study brings us much closer to having laboratory tests that can be used in diagnosis and treatment selection. The new blood test will allow physicians for the first time to use lab tests to determine what treatments will be most useful for individual patients. Currently, we know drug therapy is effective, but not for everybody. And psychotherapy is effective, but also not for everybody. We know that combined therapy, in other words, drug therapy combined with psychotherapy, this is more effective than either one alone, but maybe by combining therapies, we're using a sort of scattershot approach. And having a blood test would allow us to better target treatment to individuals. Major depressive disorder affects 6.7% of the United States adult population in a year, a number that is rising. There is typically a 2 to 40 month delay in diagnosis, and the longer the delay, the more difficult it is to treat depression. It is definitely the case that the earlier you make the diagnosis and initiate treatment, the much greater likelihood that the treatment will be successful. The longer the delay, no matter how perfectly well individualized the treatment, the greater the likelihood that there will not be a good response to treatment. An estimated 12.5% of patients who are seen in the primary care setting have major depression, but only about half of those cases are diagnosed. 
a biologically based test has the potential to provide a more timely and accurate diagnosis. The study included a small number of patients, only 32, but a broad age range from age 21 to 79. They had been independently diagnosed as depressed in a clinical interview. And then there were also 32 controls who were not depressed in the same age range. Some of the patients had been on antidepressants long term, but were still depressed. And they were participating in another study comparing the effectiveness of face-to-face -face and telephone-administered cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, we'll uh, further discuss the details of this groundbreaking study leading to a blood test for depression when we come back from our first commercial break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the development of the first blood test to, to diagnose depression in adults. This research comes to us from Northwestern University. Now, let's go into a little bit of detail of how they conducted the research. Now, with the subjects, again, there were only 32 of them. At the beginning, scientists found nine RNA blood markers with levels significantly different in the depressed patients from those of the control patients. These markers were able to diagnose depression just using blood tests, just looking for these nine different markers that represent the function of RNA. Again, that's what translates the genetic code DNA into actual uh, protein structures. Now, after 18 weeks of therapy, which was done, by the way, both face-to-face -face and by telephone, the changed levels of certain of these markers were able to differentiate patients who had responded positively 
and were no longer depressed, and by the way, that conclusion was based on a clinical interview and on patients' self-reported symptoms from the patients who remained depressed. <clears throat> and this was the first time there was a biological indicator of the success of cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, in addition, the blood test predicts who will benefit from the cognitive behavioral therapy based on a distinct pattern or fingerprint of the levels of these nine marker levels at the beginning in patients who recover from depression as a result of the therapy. The blood levels of these markers did not show this pattern in the patients who didn't improve with the therapy. And what the researchers are saying is that this distinction between people who improve or not could actually be used to predict who will respond to it in the first place. Now, the blood concentration of three of these nine markers remained different in depressed and also non-depressed control patients, even if the depressed patients achieved complete remission of depression symptoms after the therapy. So these markers appear to just indicate vulnerability to becoming depressed. And those three markers move us toward the ultimate goal of being able to identify predisposition to becoming depressed even in the absence of the patient having a current depressive episode. Being aware of people who are more susceptible to recurring depression allows doctors and therapists to monitor them more closely and they can consider a maintenance dose of antidepressants or continued psychotherapy to diminish the severity of a future episode or to prolong the intervals between episodes. Now, <clears throat> the researchers plan to study a larger population next, which you know, I think is a great idea. This is all well and good and revolutionary and just a huge development but please, yes, we need a much, much larger sample size to replicate these results. And they also want to see if the test can somehow differentiate between ordinary major depression and bipolar depression, which, of course, is a different disease state altogether because people with bipolar disorder have episode of crippling, episodes rather of crippling and disabling highs as well as the lows or depressive episodes. Now, <clears throat> the title of the research paper is Blood Transcriptomic Biomarkers in an Adult Primary Care uh, in Adult Primary Care Patients with Major Depressive Disorder Undergoing Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And again, it comes to us from Northwestern University, and it was published September 16th. In translational psychiatry. <clears throat> now, in case anyone out there listening to this is wondering, oh, well, when can I have this blood test? Unfortunately, not anytime very soon. Uh, much more research needs to be done on larger sample sizes to confirm these initial, admittedly, very, very exciting results. <clears throat> and then, of course, it will have to be submitted to 
the Food and Drug Administration, and uh, then we'll have to hope that Medicare will pay for it, and if Medicare will pay for it, then the private commercial insurance carriers will pay for it. So we've got a long way to go, but this initial step toward a blood test to diagnose depression in people who are acutely depressed and potentially in people who merely have the predisposition or vulnerability to becoming depressed is absolutely huge. And this is an incredible first step in a very positive direction. Again, as I talked about in the first segment of the show, it would reduce the stigma associated with being diagnosed with depression if people have a blood test, a set of hard data to document it. And um, it wasn't discussed in this paper, but if you could uh, see the differences after someone is getting well. In other words, you know, if you give someone with diabetes a medication to treat their diabetes, whether it's one of the oral medications or injectable insulin, uh, then you can document their progress by seeing their blood sugar levels go down. You have someone with high cholesterol, and you give them cholesterol medication, you can see those levels go down. Uh, it would be great to see that you give someone an antidepressant, you do follow-up blood tests, and the levels of these markers change, or the profile of these markers change. Uh, that would totally revolutionize the treatment of depression. Uh, so, you know, I think this is huge. It is exciting. And although I just said it's going to take a while uh, for it to get to us to use clinically every day in practice, that can happen soon enough, to be sure. <clears throat> All right, now, next up on tonight's show, there continue to be ripple effects from the tragic suicide of Robin Williams. This deeply, deeply affected a number of people. And uh, it's because so many people that I work with have known someone who've committed suicide, have thought about suicide themselves, and even some people who've attempted it. Uh, so this really hit home quite a bit for a number of people. I came across this op-ed article from a Dr. John Campo, chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at the Ohio State University Medical Center. And I thought uh, it was an excellent piece, and it talks about how suicide is not unavoidable. And <clears throat> I couldn't agree more with that statement, and so I thought I would share his op-ed piece with you. So here goes. Everyone has their share of bad days, but when feelings such as worthlessness, helplessness, or hopelessness become predominant in everyday life, there may be a more serious issue at hand. According to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, mental illness is responsible for more disability than any other specific illness in developed countries, with about 25% of all United States adults suffering from some sort of mental illness and nearly 50% of adults experiencing at least one mental illness during their lifetime. Depression, in particular, is a whole-body source of suffering and disability that can alter the way a person thinks, feels, and acts. 
Although deceptively common, depression is often tragically linked to suicide. In fact, within the past decade, suicide rates in the United States significantly increased after a previous decade of decline. It's not clear why this is, but it's probably not just from one reason, and that's the challenge presented by suicide. It's a multifaceted problem that requires multifaceted solutions. The passing of Hollywood icon Robin Williams recently shed light on how profoundly depression can affect an individual's life. Williams, arguably one of America's favorite actors, killed himself in his own home after a lifelong struggle with depression, drug addiction, and alcoholism, complicated by the recent diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. At face value, not many people would have guessed that he suffered so terribly and for so long. A revered actor, he endeared himself to the world, not just by virtue of his comic genius, but also by his warmth and sweetness of character. While his death seems especially cruel in reminding us that mental illness has the potential to undermine anyone, it also creates opportunity to share the news that depression is highly treatable and that suicide is preventable. Unfortunately, depression is a widely misunderstood and stigmatized disease. Couldn't agree more with that. Although excellent treatments are available, and it is the rare individual who will not respond to treatment, somewhat take issue with that, sometimes even wealth, resources, and connections are insufficient in engaging sufferers with the good treatment they deserve. For example, suicide rates for middle-aged white men who tend to have the resources at hand to treat their disease have gone up tremendously in the last 10 years, though researchers have not pinpointed the exact reason why. That said, based on what we know now about treatment, we should be unwilling to accept even a single suicide as being unavoidable. Depression is not the same as being in a bad or unhappy mood. The diagnosis depends on a combination of symptoms that are sufficiently severe to impair an individual's day-to-day -day functions. Recognizing depression is crucial to helping people heal, although signs of depression can be tricky to spot or easily dismissed as quote-unquote normal. These, or rather there are a few common signs of depression to look out for. Contact your primary health care provider if you begin to notice changes in yourself or a loved one. And I'm going to have to break for a commercial shortly. This is a, probably a good time to stop. We'll finish the op-ed piece and give some of my own opinions on Dr. Campo's uh, assertions when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that wellness and prevention is the key to living a long and healthy life? For example, common diseases such as acid reflux, high cholesterol, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, and high blood pressure, in some cases, are caused by poor nutrition. Scientific studies suggest the use of nutritional supplements, a healthy diet, and exercise can control and, in some cases, prevent disease. Use nutritional supplements that are formulated using good manufacturer practice standards. And remember to let your doctor know what you are taking, since it can react with prescription medication. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay, your host and psychiatrist, with all the latest mental health-related news. I am relating to you a very interesting op-ed piece from Dr. John Campo, the head of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. Uh, his uh, thoughts uh, somewhat inspired by the response to the suicide of Robin Williams. Now, he counsels everyone to contact their primary health care provider if they begin to see changes in themselves or a loved one, such as often feeling depressed, down, sad, angry, or irritable, loss of interest and pleasure in activities formerly enjoyed, noticeable increase or decrease in appetite or weight not attributable to dieting or deliberate effort, noticeable change in sleep pattern, such as fitful sleep, difficulty falling or staying asleep, early morning awakening or sleeping more than usual, fatigue or loss of energy, being noticeably slowed down or the opposite, agitated in thinking or behavior, inappropriate or excessive feelings of worthlessness or guilt, diminished ability to concentrate or to make decisions, and finally, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. These are all the classic signs of major depressive disorder. He goes on to say, It is also common for people who are depressed to feel overwhelmed and to suffer from otherwise unexplained but real physical symptoms like headache, gastrointestinal distress, or chronic pain. Depression can also sometimes distort thinking and generate unrealistic beliefs. A condition known as psychotic depression 
that can be reversed with treatment. Because each patient dealing with depression is unique, treatment must be individualized. This is especially true when first-line treatments, such as psychotherapy or an antidepressant alone, are not successful. In such circumstance, a careful evaluation for potential medical causes of depression can be helpful, and it is often useful to combine modern psychotherapy and antidepressant medication, as science tells us that the combination of medication and psychotherapy is typically superior to either treatment alone. We also know that skillfully changing or combining antidepressants can produce potentially life-changing results. Even more exciting are new treatments that make use of weak electrical current and magnetic fields to improve mood and return individuals to health. And he says that at Ohio State's Wexner Medical Center, he said, we offer treatments such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, as well as a modern, safe, and effective version of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. Depressed individuals who are discouraged by lack of progress need to understand that promising treatments are available and that the persistence of patients and doctors is most often rewarded with success. Depression is a serious illness that requires and deserves immediate care. If you or anyone you know thinks they may be suffering from depression, get ahead of the illness early to ensure a promising and happy future. Treatment really can make a difference and even prove life-saving. Well, uh, I extremely well written, well said, heartily endorse his thoughts and, and sentiments. Um, there are a few things I just want to touch on. First of all, the, the major point being, well, someone might very well still have the response, okay, well, then what what happened to Mr. Williams? You know, maybe we'll never know. Uh, maybe he did try to access treatment. Maybe he did not. Um, we certainly don't know enough about that. But, um, you know, tragically, like any medical problem, there are people who die from psychiatric illness, uh, just as there are people who die from heart disease and cancer. <clears throat> now, why are suicide rates significantly increased after a previous decade of decline. Um, he said it's not clear why this is, but it's probably not just from one reason. And that's certainly true. Uh, I heard a very interesting piece on National Public Radio a couple of weeks ago, and uh, demographers have definitely taken notice of this, and um, they think it has to do with the um, aging of the baby boom uh, why the rates have increased. Uh, it's simply, you know, a numbers game. You have uh, a large number of people entering a demographic where there is a spike in, in suicide rates to begin with, and that may be one contributor to why these rates are increasing in the previous decade. Uh, <clears throat> now, later in his op-ed piece, Dr. Campo says it is the rare individual who will not respond to treatment. Now, I totally understand the point of his piece is to promote the fact that 
depression is treatable and suicide is unavoidable. And I want to emphasize in the strongest possible terms that I couldn't possibly agree more with that sentiment and those statements. However, I have to take issue with his saying it's the rare individual who will not respond to treatment. I think that statement needs to be qualified to some degree. When it comes to antidepressant medications, studies have shown as much as a third of people will not have a good response at all. Uh, when it comes to ECT, which is certainly more dangerous and invasive and uh, has um, potential severe side effects, response rates are higher, uh, as much as 75 to 85% response. And then, of course, you talk about psychotherapy, which, uh, again, you know, that uh, may add to is the success rates. Uh, in fact, most often does, but only if it's accessible to people who suffer from depression. And he makes the point that it is often useful to combine modern psychotherapy and antidepressant medication. The science tells us that the combination of medication and psychotherapy is typically superior to either treatment alone. While there are some studies that have shown that to be the case, there are also many studies that show medication and psychotherapy have results that are more or less equal um, or that combining psychotherapy and medication is not always necessarily better than either one alone. In fact, there are other studies that show while medication may bring about more improvement sooner, psychotherapy brings about longer lasting improvement compared to medication. Any mentions new treatments that make use of weak electrical current and magnetic fields, I think we have to consider that some of these very new treatments have a long way to go before they take their place as officially vetted and improved and tested effective treatments in the armamentarium of uh, treating depression. Uh, but still, uh, you know, a, an excellent, well-written piece in um, – I definitely think the main message is a good one, that we have to be aware of depression in ourselves and those around us. We have to encourage people to get treatment, and, to, and we have to encourage patients and clinicians to be persistent. And the point about getting treated early is extremely important. He didn't mention this in his op-ed piece, but the reason for that is the earlier you start treating depression and the more aggressively you treat it as well as early, the, the greater the likelihood the person will get well. If the depression is allowed to linger and fester and uh, persist for a significant length of time without improvement, uh, it becomes much, much more difficult uh, to get that person well. All right, next up, on tonight's show, here's a potential risk factor for depression, and you may have heard about this before, but another study came out showing the links between sedentary lifestyle and depression. A new analysis of previous studies ties too much sitting at the computer or lying around watching TV to a greater risk of depression. Based on dozens of studies covering hundreds of thousands of participants, Chinese researchers found that sedentary behavior 
was linked to a 25% higher likelihood of being depressed compared to people who were not sedentary. Now, the research suggests that physical activity would be a good prescription for preventing depression. Although it was a thorough investigation of a relatively new research area, a number of unanswered questions still remain. Among these is whether sedentary behavior increases the risk of depression or whether it is those with depression are just more likely to engage in sedentary behaviors, such as computer use or television viewing. The report was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and combined and reanalyzed the findings for a total of over 190,000 participants from 24 previously published observational studies that looked at levels of sedentary behavior and risk of depression. Two of the studies were conducted in Australia, four in Asia, seven in the Americas, and 11 in Europe. Across continents, the researchers found that people with the most sedentary behavior were 25% more likely to be depressed overall compared to those who were the least sedentary. That is a remarkable uh, effect. The study team also saw differences depending on people's preferred type of inactivity. Those who most frequent sedentary behavior was watching TV were 13% more likely to be depressed, while those who spent sedentary time using the computer or internet had a 22% higher depression risk. The analysis didn't look at the reasons behind these differences or behind the links altogether, and most of the included studies accounted for other factors like illnesses that might explain the sedentary behavior, the depression, or both. But those studies may not have taken every possible factor into account. The researchers also note that they cannot rule out the possibility that depression leads to sedentary behaviors rather than the other way around. Nonetheless, that the two go hand in hand is enough to suggest that more activity might be the antidote. All right, well, we're going to take our next commercial break here. We'll be back with more on the sedentary lifestyle and links to depression and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. 
USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They are located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, and we're talking about Research concluding that a sedentary lifestyle is linked to depression, not a new idea, not a startling revelation. Now, although the study results are somewhat inconclusive regarding the connection between sedentary behavior and mental health, researchers do know that being sedentary is linked to other poor health outcomes like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. So the message that has to get out and be reinforced is still move more and sit less. There's clear evidence that physical activity is good for the management of depression symptoms as well as clinical levels of depression. There's not enough good evidence to suggest that any one specific form of physical activity is best, but research indicates that moderate exercise at least is most effective. And their advice, and I think this is good advice too, is pick activities that are enjoyable to you. And that way you're more likely to do it. You're more more likely to do it regularly and enjoy it. And that way you'll keep moving more and sitting less. And uh, you'll not only feel better physically, you'll feel better mentally as well. All right, next up on Psychiatry Today, ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, formerly known as just ADD, is a legitimate psychiatric diagnosis, and yet there are some people who say they don't believe in it, as if it were something that were subject to belief, as if uh, people who say that think they can legitimately ignore decades of hard scientific evidence and uh, think that this is not a true entity, think that it's just a construct concocted by doctors and pharmaceutical companies in order to diagnose children with a disorder and treat them with medication. Uh, These are the people who deny science and uh, subscribe to conspiracy conspiracy theories, and uh, you know 
I know this sounds strong, but I have to say that back in um, back in the day, these are probably the people who would have insisted that the world must be flat. So um, here we have a study with absolute hard scientific physical evidence of what the defect is in ADHD. And that is that the brain is slow to mature and quick to distract. Uh, an ADHD brain study finds slower development of key connections, key connecting systems in the brain. So let's examine that closely. And uh, not that there was any room for people to deny the existence of ADHD legitimately before, but certainly after hard evidence uh, the idea that someone doesn't think ADHD exists is hopelessly preposterous. A peek inside the brains of more than 750 children and teens reveals a key difference in brain architecture between those with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and those without. Kids and teens with ADHD, according to the new study, lag behind others of the same age in how quickly their brains form connections within and between key brain networks. The result? Less mature connections between a brain network that controls internally directed thought, such as daydreaming, and networks that allow a person to focus on externally directed tasks. That lag in connection development may help explain why people with ADHD get easily distracted or struggle to stay focused. What's more, the new findings and the methods used to make them may one day allow doctors to use brain scans to diagnose ADHD and to track how well someone responds to treatment. This kind of neuroimaging biomarker doesn't yet exist for ADHD or, as the article says, any psychiatric condition for that matter. Now, although there is not any one particular brain imaging study or brain imaging finding that is a, a smoking gun or telltale sign of ADHD as up till now, there have been past brain imaging studies showing differences between the brains of children and adolescents with and without ADHD. And likewise, there certainly are brain imaging studies that show differences in the brains of people with disorders like depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, just to name a couple. Now, the researchers in this study looked at the brain scans of 275 kids and teens with ADHD and 481 kids and teens without ADHD, looking at methods that map interconnectivity between networks in the brain. So they call this connectomic methods of mapping brain networks using these specific brain scans. Now these are functional MRI scanners. This is not your typical imaging machine. You would not find this at your local hospital or local imaging center. Function, 
Functional magnetic resonance imaging shows brain activity during a resting state, but brain activity in real time, as opposed to just taking a picture or a snapshot of brain activity at a given time. With the fMRI scanner, you can observe the brain activity as it's taking place during active thought. Now, this allows researchers to see how a number of different brain networks, each specialized for certain types of functions, were communicating within and amongst themselves. Again, hence their, their terminology, connectomic methods of mapping these interconnections between brain networks. Now, the researchers found lags in the development of connections within the internally focused network. That is the network that's called the default mode network. And they also found lags in development of connections between the default mode network and two networks that process externally focused tasks. These are called task positive networks. <clears throat> the default mode network you can think of as just the brain in the resting state. Uh, you're just concentrating on yourself. You're not uh, thinking of anything external. Whereas the task positive networks are more when you're externally focused and you're concentrating on some sort of task that uh, involves something outside yourself. Researchers using these scans could even see that these lags in connection development with the two task-related networks located in the frontal parietal area and the ventral area were located primarily in two specific areas of the brain. The new findings mesh well with what other researchers have found by examining the physical structure of the brains of people with and without ADHD in other ways. Such research has already shown alterations in the regions with the default mode network and the task performing networks. So the new findings build on that understanding and add to it. The findings are also relevant to thinking about the long-term course of ADHD from childhood to adulthood. Some kids and teens grow out of the disorder, while for others it persists throughout adulthood. Future studies of the brain network maturation in ADHD could shed light onto the actual basis in the brain for this difference. In the last decade, functional medical imaging has revealed that the human brain is functionally organized into large-scale connectivity networks. These networks and the connections between them mature throughout early childhood all the way to young adulthood. It is particularly noteworthy that the networks found to have lagging maturation in ADHD are linked to the very behaviors that are the symptoms of ADHD. Studying the vast array of connections in the brain again, field called connectomics, requires scientists to be able to parse through not just the one-to-one -one communications between two specific brain regions, but the patterns of communication among thousands of nodes within the brain. This requires major computing power 
and access to massive amounts of data, which makes the open sharing of fMRI images so important. This science of connectomics could be used to examine other disorders with roots in brain connectivity, including autism, which some evidence has suggested stems from over-maturation of some brain networks, and schizophrenia, which may rise from simply abnormal connections. Pooling more functional MRI data from people with these conditions and other conditions such as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and more could boost connectomics studies in those fields. Now, <clears throat> for those of you who are interested, volunteers are needed for the ongoing research. There's one study enrolling children between the ages of 7 and 17 who have ADHD and a comparison group of those without it. Another study is enrolling adults between the ages of 18 to 35 who have ADHD and a comparison group of those without it. Now, if anyone's concerned about this, fMRI scans do not use any radiation. So you won't have to worry about that uh, exposure like you would normal imaging studies. So for the child and adolescent study, you can find information at umhealth.me slash ADHD child. For the adult study, that would be umhealth.me slash ADHD adult. Again, that's umhealth.me slash ADHD child or umhealth.me slash ADHD adult. And there's also a phone number. It's 734-232-0353. Again, that's 734-232-0353 if anyone's interested in volunteering. have to wrap up the show quickly. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till we get together again next week. If not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.